Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable Skeen in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, soon to be Towson, Maryland, as we're uh, moving our offices uh, out of Baltimore City. Uh, Towson's a suburb of Baltimore, maybe uh, maybe a little less bullets flying around or whatever. As per usual, uh, I like to start my episodes with a big thank you to all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. Remember, you can listen to um, any one uh, or all of our uh, prior 85 episodes on Surety Today anytime, anywhere from one of our multiple platforms, the Surety Today page on our website at WCSLaw.com. Uh, as a podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, just search for Surety Today Podcast and it'll pop up. Uh, we also have a micro site at uh, suretytoday.net. We've exceeded uh, 10,300 downloads of the podcast, so thank you for that. As always, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, I'm joined by my special guest, Mr. Timothy Fitzgerald, uh, to talk about construction schedules and lessons learned in delay and uh, disruption claims. Tim is the, the president of Fitzgerald and Associates, uh, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, Rich Pledger and I retained him in a case last year to be our uh, schedule and delay damage expert, where a uh, general contractor was asserting a delay claim against the surety that bonded a, a subcontractor on a project at the Pentagon. The GC retained Delta Consulting and uh, was seeking over $2.9 million in damages. They produced a long delay and schedule analysis report. There were over 70,000 documents in the case, and uh, I have to say I was I was extremely impressed with Tim and how he was able to get into the project record and literally, I mean, you know, he ultimately just destroyed the delay claim in, in this case. And I, I think when we went to mediation, the, uh, the the other side basically just jettisoned the delay claim because Tim was able to just shred it. It, it, it was it was uh, it was really a fun thing to behold. He's he's like a wizard when it comes to this stuff. But Tim's been doing construction uh, scheduling and delay claim analysis for over 40 years. Uh, he's got a Bachelor of Science degree in mathematics uh, as well as a master's degree. He's developed schedules for commercial, industrial, government construction projects ranging from a million dollars to $400 million. Uh, he, he served uh, in various positions, the CEO, COO, general manager, vice president, et cetera, of various small and mid-sized construction companies, uh, and, and also as an owner's rep on, on projects. So he's, he's, he's been on these projects from, from all kinds of different angles. He's uh, written numerous articles, given presentations. Uh, he's lectured on schedule and delay issues, including to large uh, entities such as AT&T, Glaxo, U.S. Army, Burroughs. Um, he's, he's been an expert witness on delay issues in nearly 130 matters um, for, for all sides of, of the process, owners, GCs, subs, and sureties. 
that Tim's been involved in, in all types of construction projects, including schools, hospitals, office buildings, military facilities, prisons, you name it, uh, he, he's done it. So Tim, uh, uh, welcome and, and thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Good to have you. So let's, uh, let's just uh, jump right in. So, you know, uh, as I said, our discussion today, we're going to be talking about the, you know, claims and delays. So uh, the, let's start off with a general concept of claims for delay or disruption. Of course, a, a delay claim is an assertion by one party to a contract that it's being prevented from performing its contract according to the planned rate of performance because of some impediment for which another party is responsible or causing. So for example, you could have a situation where one party, let's say, is the steel erector and it cannot erect the steel because the foundations aren't ready. Uh, or the painting subcontractor can't paint because the drywall subcontractor has not installed the drywall. Delays can be caused by any number of circumstances, including bad weather, lack of supplies, lack of permits or approvals, design changes, insufficient labor, etc. Delays and disruptions follow the old adage that time is money. The longer we, the longer a party is on a project, the more it typically costs in terms of labor, equipment, and overhead. Delays or disruptions can can cause missed opportunities, like uh, you know I, I can't start my next project because I'm stuck on this project. Prices, costs can rise for labor or materials during a delay. An owner might not be able to open up its building to its tenants and customers and loses uh, revenue or uh, could incur increased uh, interest costs on construction loans and delays can lead, of course, to liquidated damages. So delays and disruptions can cause damages by causing a party to incur longer performance time on a project. So Tim, tell us uh, how do you determine if there has been delay and who is responsible? Sure, that's really a great question. In my business, um, often you are dealing in uh, uh, forensic analysis. The project is over or nearly over, and a party has made a claim. Um, as you described uh, in uh, your opening, on the project we worked together, uh, there was a very impressive-looking uh, claim prepared uh, a consultant, expert witness, and it looked uh, glossy and quite believable. The trouble is between the, the front cover and the back cover of that claim, it was totally bogus. The, the nature of the beast we're dealing with is when, we, when I say delay, uh, it has a partner. It's called disruption. Disruption is the loss of labor, and some of that labor that's lost is due to just an extended amount of time that a contractor is on the site. So I'm going to simply say delay, but it apply everything I say is regarding uh, relevant to disruption. On a project, I, I have found that delay damages, delay losses are insidious and can result in severe losses to all parties. No party on a job is insulated from these losses. Money just flows out of the project and no one can seem to stop the, the flow. One recourse is a delay claim, too often put together by a field manager or a superintendent without any training or experience 
in making such claims. I've been doing this over 40 years, and I have found that when projects are more than uh, delayed more than 25% of their original plan time, that is, if you have a one-year project and it's delayed more than one-fourth of that or three months, um, then the da damages that are experienced will wipe out all planned profit and overhead on this job. Anything more than 25%, you're actually probably dipping into the red. That makes people very anxious, nervous, and in a world where the uh, a lot of people on a job are uh, paid for success, like the project manager and superintendent, they are trying to find out how they can get out of this trouble. And unfortunately, it often comes down to something called, uh, well, who can I blame? <laughs> for the most part, delay damages are very badly done. They defy all the rules and case law for making a claim no matter what state they're in. And these claims are more like pleas for someone, anyone, to throw money their way. Because if you don't, I'm going to force you to run up significant legal costs, and I might even be able to convince an arbitrator or a judge who often doesn't understand much about construction that I may have a little bit of a claim, I may have some rights, and I may get even more money. In the simplest of terms, a project delay is the additional time required to complete the work as it was originally planned against the actual date that the work was completed. By completed, I often uh, refer to what's called substantially complete. If a project is planned to be completed in one year and it took two years, then there's an apparent delay of one year. But this can be very, very misleading. The amount of time planned for a project is defined in what is called the baseline schedule. That's a term that's thrown around a lot, and it normally means the first full project schedule on the job. Uh, believe it or not, even on giant jobs, this first schedule is rarely pre prepared by someone who's a true scheduler. Schedulers can be expensive. They can be uh, uh, sort of a, a nuisance uh, to the co contractor people because he sort of focuses them on time. So they give it to maybe somebody who knows how to operate software and he builds a schedule and they have to live to it. Uh, as time progresses, a contractor puts into this baseline schedule updates. That is, he finds all activities and he says, well, I started this one on this date. I'm 20% done and I finished it on, I'm going to finish it on this following date. Those are updates. And they give you, they demonstrate the progress or lack of progress. So it is not unreasonable that you would want to take this baseline schedule and compare it uh, to the actual progress of the work. And you get a, a monthly sort of a snapshot of what kind of progress you're making or what kind of lack of progress sometimes. Currently, I'm working on a claim that a contractor used 500 activities. That's not unusual. 500 separate activities. 
where each activity is like uh, laying the, found, the uh, uh, slab on grade, building stud walls on the first floor, etc. They, but this act, this baseline schedule had 500 activities. A schedule is supposed to be complete, but this contractor had to add 200 new activities to the schedule in the first three months of the work as he discovered that a lot of things he had in the schedule, uh, a lot of things that needed to be in the schedule were missing. So what did he do? Well, he added them, but this pushed the schedule out. And he was claiming delay. This is tantamount to considering time as a line. So you're given a, uh, a yardstick, something you label the yardstick, to measure time in a baseline schedule. So you measure it, and you say it's 100 yards based on that yardstick. But what if that yardstick is only two feet long, while the updates were three feet long? Well, in this case, a contractor would be claiming for that additional one foot. How bogus can it get? But I will tell you that the majority of claims that I get that have any size to them, this is a very common factor. A comparison of the baseline schedule to each schedule update might show the amount of delay being experienced, but it does not show why the delay occurred, who caused the delay, or whether any of the delays were justified, excused, or even compensable. The answer to these questions is usually found in what is called the delay analysis. So when I ter term that, I'm not saying that it is well done, I'm not saying anything about it, but that is what things are labeled. And when you see something called the delay uh, analysis, I'm going to be explaining to you following the things that should be in there, but uh, like in the example that Mr. Stover was talking about, uh, we found that so many of these required um, factors were actually missing or misrepresented by the contractor so that his entire claim was bogus. So um, that that is a, a sort of an inroads of where we're going here. Right. So, so the mechanics of it, you're, you, you've got your schedule, you've got your update, you're going to compare those two, you're going to look at the schedule. What are the way that, uh, that we did it and the way I understand it's typically done, the, the scheduling uh, expert will look at the project record. What kinds of things are you looking for or, or what documents in the project record do you need in order to, to conduct your, your delay analysis? Sure. Um, well, the starting point of any delay analysis is that baseline schedule. But what a in the analysis, you've got to determine if that baseline schedule has any merit. If you're going to measure the actual end date against this baseline schedule planned end date, what if the baseline schedule is totally wrong? Well, that measurement of delay is, is wrong on its face. So you have to look at this time required in the baseline schedule. I refer the listeners here to a document that is being used quite extensively in the uh, delay analysis community. It's the AACE, that's the American Association of, of Cost Engineers, 
International Recommended Practice Number 29R-03 is for Forensic Schedule Analysis. I refer you to that. There are many. If you look them up, it seems like every association has their own procedures. But this one is really comprehensive, and all the rest are far less uh, involved and uh, give far less a good direction. So this one is referenced con very commonly. So using that as a baseline for what we can talk about, this the a good baseline schedule must have uh, be proven to be accurate, reliable, and representative of the entire contract. Let me give you a few examples of what is needed and what is often missing. A scheduling software, whatever you pick, they all have what's called a project calendar. When, you, when a scheduler opens up this project calendar, it, it identifies every day of a normal work week, every day, as a work day. So in the course of a year, you would end up with no, no weekdays missing. You would have 260 days available to you to get work done. But that is not the real world. So the scheduler opens up this calendar to plan the work on this project in this location and with the information he has. For instance, a scheduler would go in, there are seven to ten holidays in each year. And no matter what you say, no one's going to show up. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So he goes in or she goes in and takes what is not marked in that calendar as a work day, and he says, no, December 25th is going to be a non-work day, and actually December 24th. And I'll do the same for Independence Day, for Labor Day, and he marks all these out as non-work days. In addition, um, contractors are told that you can only make a claim for weather impacts on a job when the weather is greater than normal. So that means, on the, from a claims perspective, the contractor must put into the calendar normal weather impacts. Let me give you an example. In Raleigh, in North uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, um, if in the month of August, uh, I know that I'm going to have a certain number of days normally and typical that are using statistics prepared by the, the National Weather Service. I can tell you that typically you're going to have five to six days in which you will not be able to work because of weather in August. The scheduler goes into each month. And using these statistics, he marks that number of days. In my practice is I mark every Friday and maybe a Thursday of every week as non-work days. You may work those days, but you're, you're not going to have, you're going to limit them in the schedule. So if I mark out a Friday and I'm doing an activity that has five work days in it and it starts on Monday, it won't show it finishing on on Friday, it's going to show it's going to finish on Monday. So that's the way weather works. 
And in addition, a good scheduler will consider the, the significant difference between a scheduled workday outside in the summer to the winter. Yes, we all think of temperature differences, but one of the major impacts in construction is not temperature. It is the number of, of work hours available with daylight. So if you're doing a grading or uh, trench work or whatever it is, in the summer you might have eight to 10 hours you can work and uh, on any given day. You can make up for a lot of delay uh, caused by other things. But in the winter, you're limited to five, at most six hours a day. Major difference, and you gotta then uh, consider that when you make the schedule. If I were to enter into this schedule, uh, let's say I have a project that is one year long, and instead of there being 260 uh, work days that was uh, without doing all these adjustments, in Raleigh, typically I have only 190 to 195 work days per year. So here's a question for you. If a scheduler, say a contractor, does not properly account for holidays and weather, and by the way, that's one of the problems that that scheduler did on that project that Mr. Stover and I worked on. He left out the holidays and the weather. That put his schedule for each year three months off. That is, when he said I could do this in one year, when you put in all the things that would stop him from getting it done, it really meant he needed 15 months. But if you had a contract that says you'll do it in a year, and the truth is you needed 15 months, he's starting from a place where the baseline schedule is clearly wrong, and you can't be making claims for delay based on false information. So that's what the he, it's what he did. schedule in our, must contain the full scope of the work. That, that's what he did in our case. Essentially, when you don't when you don't put those dates in there as as dates you can't work, you you essentially build in delay into your schedule. So even if everything is totally normally performed, you're going to be three months late. <laughs> because you didn't put yep. in exactly it, and, and it, probably it. more you know uh, I mean there's other factors to be considered but if you are in a situation where you before you step foot on the job you're going to be three months late and let's say the project is six months late so the question is can you make a claim for six months of delay well not really because your baseline schedule from which you're measuring all delay is bogus all right uh, in addition, you, a, a schedule, baseline schedule must have all components of the contract work in it. One thing that is commonly left out is the amount of time that would be needed to do uh, uh, submittals, approval, fabrication, and delivery of such things as structural steel, special glass, uh, roofing, things that sometimes have what they call long lead time items, they're badly defined and it might show the steel starting in June 1st, but the truth is the steel was never going to be there until June 15th. So having not taken all that into account, 
means that you are um, you're starting from an incomplete schedule, and it throws your whole logic uh, out, of, out of the window. Uh, so when a contractor does the update schedules, it is required that they put in actual true information. That is, if you say you started foundations on January 1st, there should be a record that you actually started on January 1st. Very commonly, a contractor wants to get paid for work that he says he's doing and getting done, but maybe he's really not. Uh, maybe he didn't start on January 1st. He didn't start till January 20th, and that might be uh, a cause of delay, but he puts it in, bills for it, and you'd be surprised how often he gets paid for it. So where do we find the truth? We get such products as the contractor's own daily records, meeting minutes, uh, the, any kind of information we can glean from the schedule. And we find out what was truth. And when you go to the actual schedule, the update schedules, they also, according to that standard, have to meet a standard of accuracy, completeness, and exactness. And it is very common, in my experience, that when a schedule is significantly delayed, that the contractor facing all kinds of uh, stones that are going to be thrown at him by the owner for being late does things to a schedule to hide the real delay. So he's putting in false information. And he's and I'll explain to you how he does that in a few moments, but he puts in information that is not true. So basically you have this. If you have a delay claim and your baseline schedule is erroneous and your updates are false, what is your ground truth for making a claim? What caused delay? You have no measuring stick to say how much delay was incurred uh, who caused it, you have nothing. But what contractors often do is they don't care. They are desperate. Somebody puts this claim together and they throw it out there with the hope that they're going to get somebody's attention and maybe somehow some uh, money will fall from the sky to help them out. You is, one of the, uh, is one of the tricks that, that you'll find in this context, uh, the use of constraints on the schedule? Absolutely. What happens is uh, a constraint is you may have something in a schedule that uh, the logic says that I will start <clears throat> um, erecting structural steel on, on June 15th. Well, if a contractor wants to uh, hide some delay, he uses this thing called constraint. And which it, what he does is he goes in and he takes that date of June 15th, pulls it back to June 1st, and sort of plants it in the schedule. And it's fixed by, by a constraint, which is supposed to be a legitimate tool available to schedulers. But in this case, he's artificially bringing the date that the work is going to be finished back by two weeks, three weeks. I've seen contractors do this not with one activity, but 
many activities. In fact, maybe 10, 12, 15 constraints used. And there's an expression in the claims industry that anything more than one, two, maybe three constraints in an entire schedule makes the whole schedule questionable because they're being misused and they're altering the logic of the schedule, making it impossible to really fix it, to understand it. Uh, so that that is a trick, and that's one thing that when I am asked to look at a schedule, I look first, first, to see the calendar. Second, to see if they use a lot of constraints. If they do, I'm alerted that there's something nefarious afoot, to quote Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> All right, well, we're down to just a couple of minutes. Um, why don't you talk to us about... Um, Let's see here. Well, one of the ways that the delay can be manipulated is by changing the uh, the original durations in the schedule. What are your thoughts right. about that? There's something called the critical path, and if you uh, contractors know this, critical path is the uh, the sequence of work. There can be more than one critical path. There's a sequence of work that if you delay anything on that critical path, you're going to delay the project. And that's where delay to the project comes in. So you define the critical path. But what happens is, is, let's say there's an activity with 10 days on it, and you're trying to show the owner that um, there was no delay to this job. Well, you might take and make that 10 a 5, and that pulls the whole project back five days. And that's work days, so a week. That recovers a week for one activity. If you do it to a number of them, you can recover a month. And very few people see that kind of, of manipulation. And the owner thinks things are on time. Uh, another thing is that there is something called the logical updates. Think of this. A, an activity has 10 days. In the software, the contractor puts in there, okay, I'm 50% done, so then he gets paid for 50% of that activity. However, he wants that activity to be, uh, it needs more time. So he puts in there 15 days remaining. Wait a minute. If you have 10 days when you started with and you're 50% done, the software says, well, therefore, you have five days remaining. He puts in 15 that pushes the schedule way out. Can this be true? It can be true. But I have worked a project not long ago for the city of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where a contractor had over 100 activities that were falsely updated like that. Another one is you drop activities. That's like dropping work out of a schedule. Um, negative float, this is, float is uh, the amount of extra time you have to do something. Uh, negative float is when you look at, a, you normally have a schedule that shows positive float. The lowest number is normally zero. But there is a mechanism that a contractor can use where uh, something called negative float, minus float, comes up. And so there's not only no time, you're behind the eight ball. There are many articles that show that contractors do not understand negative float. Owners don't get it. Con architects don't get it. So what happens is a, con a contract goes into negative float, and from that point on, 
No one has any clue who's on the critical path, how to progress to work, how to determine who's got to be working overtime. It's just a giant blob of information that is lost. So what a contractor well, does when that kind of stuff happens, he really just, on paper, continues with his schedule, but he switches the entire schedule. He goes from a, a critical path method schedule to doing something by spreadsheets. Uh, and it's now the one thing he issues. Why? Because he has no belief in that schedule. So he's going to make up his own, but he doesn't want to announce to the world his schedule is bogus. Well, he doesn't mind then, though, at the end of the job, he uses the schedules that he labeled as bogus in his mind to use those to measure delay. Those are very common practices, and uh, they they often can get an entire claim thrown out. So, well, we, Tim, we've we've uh, we've we've hit our time limit here, and I think okay. I think we may want to we, we we may may want to schedule another one in the future to to touch on some more points that we didn't get to uh, because of our time constraints. But I think the bottom line here is that, and what we found in our case together is that you you may get a claim uh, that looks that looks like it's uh, well uh, thought out and, and well verified, but it's not. Uh, you, you really got to get uh, the scheduling experts in there to find all of the tricks that have been used to uh, to, to make the claim seem like uh, something more than what it is. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, thank you for that, Tim. And uh, sure. I'm going to do our quick closing here. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, um, the next episode is September 11th uh, on, on, uh, at 1230. Uh, upcoming events, uh, September 6th through the 8th is the Perlman Conference uh, in Seattle. September 13th, we've got a uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Luncheon. Uh, we're going to have uh, claims managers uh, from different companies uh, on a panel discussion for that luncheon. Uh, September 20th through 23rd is the Northeast Fidelity Surety Claims Conference uh, in Atlantic City. Uh, WCS, uh, of course, is a proud uh, co-sponsor uh, of the Northeast Conference. Uh, you can go to our Surety Today uh, blog website at wcslaw.com to see a calendar of uh, Surety events. So thank you uh, to everyone for joining us today. I'm going to open up the line in case we see if we have any questions. Uh, are there any questions for, for Tim? Uh, hello. Tim, are you still there? I am. Okay. Well, the line's open. We're not getting any questions, so uh, we're going to wrap things up. And again, thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge and experience and wisdom with us today. And I think we may have to have you back to get into some more of these issues. But uh, again, My thank pleasure. you very much. All right. Well, Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.